is a Momentum Media production. Inside Commercial Property with Rethink Investing. Australia's largest and most comprehensive podcast covering all things commercial investing. G'day, how you going? Inside Commercial Property, Phil Tarrant here, co-hosts with my colleague Scott O'Neill, Director, Founder, Rethink Investing, chatting things all through commercial property on the airwaves of the Property Investment Podcast Network and also tuning in. Hello to everyone watching us wherever you tune into this, probably on YouTube or elsewhere. Uh, welcome to uh, Inside Commercial Property. We like doing this. It's, you know, regular monthly occurrence where myself and Scott get together and we have a chat about commercial property and like to think probably changing people's mindset towards commercial property. We, we get a lot of feedback. I was only, um, I ought to be sort of a, at least a month or so ago now, I was up at the big real estate conference called ARIC, the Australian Real Estate Conference, uh, up on the Gold Coast. And um, I think it was late May by memory and um, just visibility. This has, this podcast has, this podcast network has changing how people think, act, behave, operate around property. And it's nice to know that uh, we are helping people make those changes uh, to the attitudes towards investing in property. Maybe that switch shift or shift from resi to commercial and uh, we'll keep going at it. We get a lot of feedback, which is good. We collect that feedback, which is good. And then occasionally we get together and we talk about that feedback, which is good. That's what we're going to do today, Scott. How are you going? Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, I thought it'd be uh, good to go through a bunch of the questions that have built up yeah. over time. So yeah, we've had a lot of guests on recently and They've been really good, really interesting to to hear what those guys have to say. But um, yeah, I thought we'd just go back and get into the nitty gritty of commercial property again. Yeah. So I actually called up, um, we had a, a couple of uh, agents fly in a couple of months ago now from Toowoomba and Townsville by memory. Did I get that right? That's right. And we had a good chat around those markets, sort of Southeast Queensland and, and Townsville. And uh, I remember uh, chatting with the guys before we come on air around... Uh, the minister for, for Townsville, Phil Thompson, MP. I actually saw him the other day and they were telling us a story about a dinner uh, they had with him and uh, I am happy to confirm that what they said was absolutely <laughs> correct. <laughs> He'd only been in the job for a couple of weeks as well, but um, he's obviously passionate about uh, about his location, his area, and, uh, and I mentioned that, that I caught up with... Um, Oh, I can't remember his name, uh, the agent out of... Uh, Sean McLaren. Sean, there yeah. Go. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, all good. And that was good. It's nice to deep dive into areas like that to actually give a, a real sort of, you know, this is the real deal inside view on a particular area and, and Townsville being a, a place of growth. And we sort of spoke through that. Go back and tune into it. It would probably be, I would imagine, the April installment of Inside Commercial Properties when we did that, uh, which is cool. But, uh, and, and if you tune in, guys, thanks for coming down again, uh, all the way down to Sydney. I know it's probably a cultural shock to you, <laughs> but um, the feedback has been good. It's great. I like doing this. And you must get feedback every day on it. Though. How many people do you, how many sort of clients do you catch up with and they go, oh, yeah, you know, I listened to this and this, that, and the other? Yeah, look, uh, this podcast formed a lot of their decision making or their initial interest in commercial property. So, yeah, it's been huge for us and rethink investing in general. And, yeah, we'd like to position this as just not a sales pitch, just something to have a yak about with all things commercial property. And yeah, it's it's is there a great. sales pitch in in for commercial property buyers agents? You got to you don't really have to sell, do you? No, People come and find you, don't they? We've got to remind people mm. the sky's not falling in when it's not. We've got to remind people there's potentially a better asset class. So I guess that's an indirect sales pitch, but. Um, yeah, we're really just having a chat about the asset class and yeah. we've got opinions on the market and, and we do push those as well. So, you know, it's never financial advice, but it's 
everything we've sort of said has been pretty level, I think, all along the whole way. And getting these agents in and get, talking to, you know, like the guy in the last month's one, um, Michael McIntosh, yeah. the farmer, seeing what he's done with his life. and the, the whole sort of, and it makes sense, yeah, this wealth transition, right? We spoke of that within rural communities and rural communities being many ways for hundreds of years that the backbone of the Australian economy, you know, the transition of wealth within rural communities. But just someone at some point being smart enough to go, yes, we're farmers and we will continue to farm. However, maybe we should just put our money outside of farming. And, and the point was commercial property is a great place for that. It gives you choice and options moving forward. Yeah. I think it was well considered. Yeah, exactly. And I read an article, it was a little while ago, actually, it was talking about investors should follow what family offices do. You know, like this, the first family office was the Rockefellers. And obviously now in Australia, we've got the Gina Reinhart's, the Andrew Forrest, all those kind of guys. And for years, they were buying rural land up. But for, uh, for the last year or two, they've been selling it. So, you, you know, they say the everyday investor, we're not going to be able to compete with those guys, but follow what they're doing. Mm. They tend to know what they're doing as well. So the fact that they got in a long time ago, they bought up most of, you know, northern Australia in some areas. And um, a lot of them are selling out and they are transitioning into different types of assets. Mm. And, and one of those right now is commercial property. Gina Reinhart recently bought a tower in Brisbane office. As you, know. you do. Yeah, as you do. Like office to the everyday person seems like a ridiculous idea at the moment, but um, yeah, follow the money. Who knows? Well, follow the money and, and yeah, they're fortunate because they make so much dough. They're able to pay the best and brightest people for, you know, five, 10, 20 year horizons, right? And, yep. and that mining game um, was a Hancock, uh, you know, to have visions of 50 years into the future. There are some smart people that can help you doing that, but you don't need, if you don't have the money to do it yourself, just follow to your point, follow what follow what other people are doing and uh, success leaves clues, right? Yep. So, and they generally beat the market by three to 4% as mm. well. So, you know, if everyone's getting 7% in the sh stock market, they're normally getting three or four over that on average. Yeah. If you look across the thousands of different family offices out there. So yeah, I found that article interesting and yeah, there's there's a bit about that once you sort of start digging start into digging that. And you can go and find it, right? But, you know, the point is sort of counter-cyclical investing, you know, uh, she must know something other people don't because you talk about anyone, anyone at the moment, any, to anyone at the moment, they'll tell you, you know, the office market as part of commercial is still, still subdued without a lot of sort of vision or visibility of the future. But then you look around, you know, we're recording in, in North Sydney, they're putting up towers left, right and centre at the moment, you know, so go figure. Yeah, yeah, look, it's still a strange one. Look, maybe there was a bit of the fact she'd use the office as part of her, uh, you know, Hancock mining office space, mm. uh, housing staff there. But yeah, it's very counter-cyclical. There's probably a discount being offered and yeah. compared to some other assets like industrial property, which can be inflated in certain markets, like there is better buying per square metre mm. on a historical basis at least. Yeah, and, and one of the this is a question that's come in today and we'll, we'll get into it, but it's sort of connected in with this is is around REITs, real estate investment trusts. So buying inside of a, a REIT, whether it's listed or unlisted or whether it's buying sort of direct property. But you look at the office market's gotten, you know, you look at the city, the city skyline's changed recently with the Salesforce Tower, right? You know, and you, you sit there and just scratch your head going, a lot of money's gone into building that thing. It looks, looks okay. Then you look at the AMP buildings have all been redeveloped. They're, they're redoing the, the smaller one. They've redone the larger one. Like the skyline in Sydney is changing in the office market. So people must be back in the office market. It might not be right away, but they're obviously thinking 10, 20, 30, 40 years in time. Yeah. Well, look, immigration levels picking up. Yeah, they're going to work in the city, aren't they? So mm -hmm. 
there's greater forces at play that the everyday person doesn't see and it's probably not a good market for the next few few years but uh, like you said that long-term horizon center of a big city that's growing it's yeah it's still going to have value well the best best city in the world to live allegedly this is uh yeah some stuff that came out last month or the other month but uh well let, let's kick off so we'll talk about reeks today and there's there's quite a few questions coming in i'm actually looking at my phone for those who are watching this on on video i'm actually looking at my phone I've, there's some notes here for once normally uh there's, there's zero notes but uh, we have some notes so we'll talk about REITs. Uh, we'll talk about questions here around sort of value-adding frameworks. There's uh, questions here around what to do at renewal time. Uh, there's questions here around what do you do with vacant properties. You know, there's, there's questions here around innovation. There's questions here about how close you should get to your tenant. So we'll, we'll, we'll bang through a lot of these today, but um, there's one point here from someone who hasn't really disclosed themselves, REITs versus uh, self-owned property, so performance, REITs, assets, et cetera, an area for the podcast. Or if you have any existing thoughts, research chair, I was wondering if Scott could cover his thoughts on direct commercial property versus buying a REIT, e.g. Dexas uh, Industrial REIT, uh, or an unlisted managed fund uh, such as Charter Hall Industrial Fund number four. He's pretty specific there. We won't talk specifically around any funds at all, but um, investing in commercial property via a REIT or via doing it yourself. Now, let's be clear, if you've got a superannuation fund, whether it's a, a retail fund or an industry fund, there's a good chance that you've got exposure to property, commercial property, listed commercial property, or even unlisted commercial property. So you would have some exposure to it, but Scott, thoughts? Well, look, there's a lot to break down there. So interestingly, this market, um, it's a hundred and, well, according to the recent statistics, it's $144 billion dollar industry. So it's quite large and in it's Australia. in Australia. But that's broken up. Well, there's actually a lot more than that if you sort of go into the unlisted funds and listed funds. So look, real quickly, a listed fund is transacted or at least traded on the stock exchange. Yep. So it's like shares. So, so let's start, let's go real basic. What is a, a listed fund? So what is a fund? Let's be visual about this, right? Because yep. people might not understand it. What, what, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What's in it? How does it work? So a listed fund is bought and sold on the stock market. It's like shares in a building yeah. or shares in a multi, I guess, holding investment trust. So it might have 20 properties in there. So yeah. it's like a blended yield. You're going to get the profits out of it. It's very liquid. You can invest lower amounts of money. You don't need to be a sophisticated investor. That's the where you've got to have you know either investing 500 grand or earn 250 two years in a row or have 2.5 net mil in assets or more. So that's what you need to do if you're going in an unlisted fund. So an unlisted fund is a privately held trust. It's generally managed by often the same companies. They can have both, but the listed funds are much larger because they're getting larger volumes of money put into them. They're a lot more liquid. The unlisted ones, yeah, they could be an individual property. They've got a responsible manager over it. And the key is there's so many different types. There's Mm -hmm. thousands of these. It's an old industry, you know, the big companies like Dexas and Center Group, Westfields, like these guys like Stocklands, they've been around forever. They can develop properties. They they do everything from just holding to value adds to um, office REITs to industrial REITs to retail REITs to blended REITs, regional REITs. You know, they're all out there. So you've got to really pick one that fits with your investment strategy and, and look at, the I guess, the manager's history and all that kind of stuff. But it's an easy way to get started into commercial if you don't have as much money or you don't know what you're doing and you just want the safety of someone to do it all for you. Now, there's a lot of negatives to do it and 
You know, there's a lot of people that won't tell you the negatives because it's a massive industry that tells you all the positives, you know. So, you know, and full disclosure, I'm, look, I'm more biased towards direct investing because I've made more money through that. But I have set up trusts multiple times. I've helped investors get into them. I'll be doing it in the future again as well. So I, I do see the benefits of both. But what the fund managers will not tell you is it's very fee intensive. Like, so you've got, normally it's like an acquisition fee. It could be one, one and a half, two percent to purchase. It could be half a percent or even a percent every year. This is the entire value of the asset every year that you get charged. And that just basically, it gets charged by devaluing your shares in that fund. So it's still a cost to you. And they generally will force you to sell every five to seven years because they make money through selling and they get a performance fee. This all varies between every different fund. like Listed and unlisted. It can be both. Yeah. Yeah. So there's just so many different variations and rules. So this is a very high level general comment. Mm. But you've got to be wary. These fees do take away from your profit margins. and So they take all these fees. So really, really simple thing. So you have a, a trust, listed or unlisted. They get a whole bunch of money from people, club it all up. Then they go and buy different assets that live inside this trust. And then that trust... The, the assets in those that trust perform, they provide rent, et cetera. Then whatever's left of operating costs, et cetera, gets sliced up. But before it gets sliced up to you, the investor, they take all their fees off it. That's right. And you're left with what's left. Yeah. And there's normally an overraise component. So, mm. you know, they might have 110% of the money in there and that kind of accounts for different levels of fees and, yeah. you know, if the tenants don't pay all on that month. Mm. So there's buffers in place. So. Mm. That can equate to, let's say you've got it for five years, you've got a 2% upfront, so 2%, then you might have five years of that half a percent each year, so that's another 2.5%. And then you've got a selling fee and a sales fee, performance fee. Like It can actually equate to about 8 to 10% in total fees okay. of the total value. So your money gets diminished due to that. When you go by yourself, even if you use a buyer's agent, they're going to be charging like an upfront you know, one or call it two percent fee right up front, but that's it. But then you, you own it. Okay, man. What do you guys do? You do an upfront. Fee. You do a. We do a fee at settlement. One point nine percent. So it's very similar to the acquisition fee you'll be paying for a, a REIT. Yeah. So it, they they all do the same thing. So that's just, that's getting the person getting paid for finding the right asset. Now you like to think inside of a REIT, they're finding the right asset. They're putting the right asset, and depending on the REIT, they might have some office stuff in there, they might have some industrial stuff in there, they might have some diversified stuff. So the same applies for a buyer's agent. You're out there buying a fit-for-purpose property on what someone's trying to achieve. Yeah. Acquisition so, fee. So the acquisition fee is really to pay for finding the property and the mm. due diligence of it. Yeah. And obviously all the legwork in getting you through to settlement. So there's a bit in it and um, you should be doing the same job. So we buy from funds regularly, like selling yeah. off their smaller assets more so because fund managers generally play in the 30 mil space, but they still have five, $10 million assets. Mm. So they're the ones we love trying to pick up. Often no agent involved, direct from the fund. They're good to buy from because they got the due diligence in packs and they've got to report it to their investors. Uh, they've got book values where they have internal valuations. Um, See, this is what I've always found, you know, looking at REITs versus directs. The way, and for the uneducated person, myself included, I call it the skullduggery sometimes you see in trying to lift the, the value of, of, a, of an asset. You see, they're just going, 
you know, and I just I don't really understand it. That's not really the way it works. And and having been on the the side as a, a tenant for commercial transactions, you know, they'll tell you it's nine hundred dollars a square meter, and that's the value of the property. However, they'll be giving you incentives to get that down to six hundred bucks a square meter, right? So so the book value of it is nine hundred bucks a square meter, but realistically, it's yielding only at six hundred bucks a square meter. So this is where it gets a bit murky for yep. me. But if you have an acceptance and understanding of that, that's okay. You just need to know how it works. I don't think a lot of people actually know how it works. No. And look, there's a bit of controversy around at the moment, mm. um, particularly in the office market. Like I read I read a short snippet of an article that I saw the other day. So with several large industry super funds posting positive returns courtesy of internal valuations, some observers are calling foul, claiming this paints an unfair positive picture on their investment performance in the last financial year. The last financial year has not been great. Um, yeah. If you look at the overall stock market, it's down about 6%, um, but they're still posting values much higher than They're that. putting their own valuation on it. And, and commercial assets are valued by how much yield it really generates, right? Yeah. You know, so numbers can get a bit rubbery. Yeah. And I just don't, for me personally, like I'm a do-it-yourself investor. I like having full control and having no control and trusting someone that's got to drive a business profit. Yeah. It just well, which is what you need, well. right? I know, but like you need someone, if you're investing in companies you want to be investing in or REITs or, or whatever it is that are profitable, right? You don't yeah. want to be going backwards. But the point being, uh, and I made it said beforehand, is that most Australians have exposure to this sort of stuff via their super fund. And super funds will do listed REITs and unlisted REITs, right? They'll just buy a whole building themselves and, and manage it rather than sort of trade or transact on the stock exchange. So most Australians are connected in with this, but I think if you ask the yeah, average person on the street who has a super fund, they have no idea how it all works. And they just, it's a mystery, you know, and unless you're really curious to go and find out, you're never going to know. But I think those that run and operate these type of things, and it's not a negative point, but it's like, they quite like the idea that is a bit mysterious and no one really knows, right? Yep. And that's one of the negatives of the REITs. Um, but there's a lot of positives as well. Yeah, so the positives are it's liquid. Well, it's, the ones on the stock exchange are liquid. liquid. Um, a lot of the unlisted stuff, you, you can't get out if you, once you're in. It's hard. They've got to replace your portion. There's there's sometimes costs associated with selling. Yeah. Uh, look, you really got to prepare to just leave your money there and trust it's all going to go well. But you can put less amounts in there. So one of the arguments REITs, investors will always say, or not investors, the managers will say, oh, you can't buy good quality property under X amount of dollars. And that's one of the big sales pitches, you know, come and buy the big property with us, the big shopping center, and it's safer. And it is safer in general because you're protected by more tenants. You've got, you know, potentially longer leases, bigger brands. These properties all exist in the cheaper price points, but, Mm. you know, it takes a lot of skill and luck to find them. So for the everyday punter who spends less than an hour a week on investing, this could be a safer option unless you outsource it and then you you can get the good results by direct ownership. The leveraging factor is probably the main reason I personally see a benefit for direct investing. You can get 60, 65, 70, even 80% loans in in, uh, commercial property direct investing and in a REIT, it's 50. Yeah. So, a lot of them aren't even leveraged that high, which is probably a good thing when you're coming into a downturn because we all saw what happened in the GFC. All the highly leveraged REITs went under. They, some dropped in value by 40%. Some went under. It was it was a 
messy period after 2009. Mm. Uh, but yeah, direct investment, just like residential property, that leveraging component is the greatest multiplier of profit that you can get. You leverage something to 80% and hold it for 20 years, it's hard to go backwards. As long as you meet your cash flow mm. Uh, obligations, yeah. there is more upside. Oh, yeah, I, I must admit, direct uh, commercial property, it's pretty easy, right? Like, it's a lot more forgiving than residential property. I'll tell you that as an asset class, you, it's not as much of a time absorbing issue. Yeah, I don't, well, I have, I still have some money in sort of retail super, but I have no direct sort of connected exposure to REITs, whether they're solicited or unlisted. Well, I guess I do actually, because a lot of my investing is through trust, right? So they're unlisted. Trusts, so yeah, I do have a big exposure. <laughs> it's funny how you frame it, but um, yeah, it's horses for courses, I guess. Yeah, you know, people are going to go to, to you, Scott. Well, of course, you're going to say, you know, invest directly rather than a REIT because that's the game that you're in. Yeah, but so, like, so whether there's a bias there, I don't know, mate. Look, there is a bias, but again, I've set these up, and I will be setting up another one, like even just a feeder fund. So when people are waiting for a property, they might get exposure to return. So mm. there is benefit when you have a liquid fund because you're getting a return on money. But you can't compare it long term to a direct ownership. Like even in my own portfolio, I've been getting 35% average returns since I started, you know, and if you look at the returns on the unlisted funds, they're well well under half that. And it, we're still buying the same stuff, getting mm -hmm. the same yields. It's the leveraging difference and you the fees. So how much of last year have you copped on that 35 day? You get that now with all these interest because you know you're leveraged. So. Yeah, I reckon last year my portfolio has gone backwards about 6 or 7%. Okay. Overall, so um, it's gone backwards in terms of its capital value. Yeah, and yeah. then um, the rents have gone up about 4% on okay. average. So there's been a bit of a buffering in that department. But, yeah. um, but, but, you, but you, you know, dwell too much and you just go, well, you know, this too will pass, right? It's a moment no. in time. The biggest impact of the last year is the cash flow, which everyone who owns property has that. So, yeah, the income is lower. And I guess what people must realise is when you have – interest rates go up, that actually is going to create a long-term benefit for you because you're in, or I guess the rents are going to go up for a higher amount for a longer period of time. Mm. And there's a few reasons for that. People build less, people um, push their tenants up in value more, you're more ruthless on a, a lease negotiation because mm. you, you have to and you feel like you've been hard done by on the interest. But the net effect is there's just less stock. There's more tenants that haven't bought their owner-occupier warehouse or retail shop. They're just happy to be tenants because the interest yeah. rates don't make sense. People feel poorer, so that big deposit is probably less likely to be there. So the tenant market, just like it is in residential, gets very strong in a higher interest rate environment. And that has a better net benefit for you long-term and plus inflation erodes debt. So the more inflation that happens, that X amount of debt everyone has is going to erode faster over time. Mm -hmm. So if you can get past this hump, then there's going to be pretty good stories to be had in a few years' time. It's just the cash flow is hard for most yeah. people now. Okay, so that sort of REITs versus direct, and noting that we won't chat specifically about funds, but um, look, if you want to pick that up, pick that chat up, um, I'm sure Scott and his team are happy to have a yarn with you about it. It's just one thing, a question I want to ask, well, what sort of interest rates you're getting at the moment, just on your stuff, at least stock or, or otherwise? Can you give me a sense? Because I'm looking at some of mine going, oh, is this competitive? And you, you, can call up, yeah. you, you can call up your lender with a commercial just like Resi going, hey, I want to sharper rate or I'll shift it. So my rates range from 5.6 to 6.2. The okay. 6.2s I've recently just reached out to my broker and said fix them and they're, they're coming down into like the high fives now. So Fixed. 
Oh, yeah, fi- fix them as in. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so saying they're too high, get them lower. Yep. Yeah. Yes. What sort of lenders are you with? The two majors are Combank and Westpac. Yeah. But I've got a lot with NAB okay. as well. So probably yeah. those three. And yeah. then a few of the smaller banks with the resi stuff. But um, yeah, I like going with the banks who offer the best deals of the year. So you stay flexible because you might move everything mm. in a year's time, especially with the predicted rate cuts next year in 2024. Yeah. You don't want to be sitting on some fixed rate where you can't get out of a loan. Like yeah. there's going to be a lot of refinancing next year. And um, it's because deals are going to be there out to be had, I think. So mm. get through this year and there'll be a better picture next year. So the point being, call up your lender and say, as a commercial investor, hey, what can you do on my rate? Otherwise, I'll refinance it. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I actually did some of that on my portfolio on Friday when I sort of get a bit pissed off and annoyed yeah. with the world. I go, well, I'm going to call up some banks and get into a fight because it just, just rails me. And um, I caught up one bank, uh, major bank, and um, here's a hot tip for you. Google discharge your mortgage phone number with a bank and you'll get a direct number that you'll get pretty quickly chatting with someone. And um, – they shaved well over a percentage point off my my rates in about five minutes across really? six loans. What and are you I, paying uh, on your super fund one? Because they're quite high at the yeah, moment. Yeah, and, and, and that's it, right? Because I was going to ask you around that because they're less forgiving on, mm. on stuff inside your SMSF. It's got to be 7. 7.3, 7.4 maybe. That sounds about right, yeah. Because yeah. mine's quite high. Like I've only got a small loan in the super, but it's mm. um, – About the same? It's about that, yeah. yeah. So – a super fun, like you, you're going in with a fair bit of cash in there, so it's still positively geared yeah. to get those loans. But yeah, you're not you're not laughing to the bank on cash. And, and they don't care. You call up, going, I'm going to refinance my loan in your super fun. and go, all right, good luck. Yeah, you know, I don't know. There's just not enough competition in there's that. There's not space. enough competition. Okay, go and do that because they know there's only oh, there's more lenders back inside of SMSF commercial, right? But still, not a lot. They, they just go, yeah, all right, good yeah. luck, yeah, enjoy. But yeah. outside of super, it's. Uh, much much yeah. easier. Lease stock loans aren't as good as they were. Like mm. they're going back to the sixty five percent, but like they dropped down to fifty percent debt for a while. Yeah, um, that space will improve. But yeah, right now it's not fantastic. But the rates are probably a percent higher. Do the banks ever revalue your assets and go, no, I'm not happy with the LVRs? Like, because I imagine their valuation might differ from a market valuation, right? Do you ever get a, a margin call on your stuff in commercial? I've never had it. I always tell them to do valuations myself. So mm. my last round of valuations were like 2011 and hadn't done anything since then. But there was a lot of growth in 2012, yeah. a lot more than the recent kickback. Um, so, yeah, there's a net benefit because I'm doing it now just to – I think there's there's good buying right now. So, mm. like I'm, I, so you're going to extract some equity, are you, and yep. go again? Yeah. yeah. I'm doing a few developments because I've got shopping centres that have free land. So, like, I want to – they're a long-term play. I've got some shopping centres that yeah. have some free land. Yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> so you're going to be extending shopping centres now, are you? Yeah, so about, well, one's got a 1,000 square metres of net loadable area add-on. I bought the land next to it, so you could – and I got a DA. It cost me 60 grand to get that DA okay. plus, plus the land we bought. Is this regional? That one's a regional one. Yeah, and the council pretty happy if you'd extend your shopping centre. They're probably going great. It's great for the community, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's all about like car park ratios and yeah. um, the tenants were all freaking out because they were they saw it and they objected to vacate, you know, basically. But we're not going to like. Oh, so the tenants going, we don't want any more here because it's going to dilute people buying stuff from them. Yeah, they yeah. voiced their concerns. Um, yeah. But we're not going to like put conflicting businesses in there. Like we want to work with them and. How yeah. how, how big is the shopping centre? 
Like oh, it's eight shops, so it's got a food works, a chemist warehouse, like a, a high street, high street type of thing, right? No, like a, a like a little yeah, it's yeah. next next to um an airport, regional airport, and um yeah, like with that center, it'll add fifty car parks and three more shops, big okay. ones too. So. Gonna put an Audi in there is probably what'll annoy the food works, right? Yeah, won't yeah. do that one. No. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, probably some like I don't know. Yeah, we, there's just so many variations, yeah. like you know, any of that kind of I guess business food related stuff. It, yeah. We don't have much of that in I there. Put a KFC in there. Yeah. Can't go wrong. But um anyway, I've, I've jumped in a lot of my questions. So let's get back to uh, the questions here. So this one here uh, is around sort of value adds. I won't go into the the whole sort of extracted thing, but value add frameworks for extracting. Uh, all the value of your commercial assets. It's a bit vague, right? So pretty much, what do you got to do to get more value out of what you got right now? And we've spoken about this before, like chucking solar panels on your roof and renting that out. Yep. You talk about maybe if you can put some signage in there, if you've got a, somewhere on a thoroughfare, you know, you put some signage on the side of it, and you can sell that to someone. So these are all the little, probably one, two, five percent is where you can eke a few more bucks out of commercial asset, right? Yeah. So the highest percentage play, the one that you'll actually action without dumping hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars is raising rents and lengthening leases. So this is the perfect environment, the best environment we've ever had since I started investing to raise rents because rents are going up, particularly in industrial, some tightly held uh, retails going up very quickly. But you can only do that at the point of a lease renewal, yeah. You right? could, which is, it's a lot more static than residential property. You might only wait five years. You can go to the tenant and say, do you want to renew early? Mm. 100%. Like, especially, like we did one with a gym recently. It was three years out and um, the guy wanted to sell his business because he wanted out, but he needed a long lease to increase the business valuation for that gym. Then we got a 10-year lease out of it. So we turned a three into a 10. And you just so, got to so he can sell the business on the continuity of the lease, as in it's not going to go away. So he was happy to sign on for a few more bucks. Yep. Yeah. So okay. imagine you're going to buy a gym mm. and you saw that there's a, you know, a two-year lease left. It's just, it's a question mark. And uh, you'd worry about it. You'd naturally think, well, I don't feel secure because what if that landlord didn't uh, allow me to renew? There was mm. no option on that. So- yeah, it's it's a question mark that would hurt a valuation okay. for a business. So that that's how you can increase the sort of extract more more of the value of commercial asset is longer leases and higher rent. Yeah, yeah. Before you start getting to the other stuff, but be careful with longer leases because this changes over time. Like I was talking to a client, we're looking at a ten year lease on a big industrial property mm-hmm. in Brisbane. Um, that sounds amazing. Everyone wants a ten year lease, but. We got through it and we were like, well, actually, this 10-year lease is going to hold the value back for quite a long time because mm. rents are going a lot quicker than- And what's this, a set sort of yeah. annual sort of uh, increase? 4% increases. But 4% increases when rents are going double that doesn't look great, no. especially for 10 years. So mm. uh, we would actually have preferred a three-year lease in that case, um, even though the bank wouldn't like it as much, most investors wouldn't like it. But if you really think the value-add side of things, that rent going up and the ability to- tweak it earlier is a big advantage. But just remember, like these valuation uplifts, like the, they're still there for a rainy day. Like even in, in that 10-year example, like there's going to be a lot of upside in that rent eventually. It's just not in yeah. the next few years. So. Well, 4% compounding, you do the math, it starts looking a bit attractive, right, over 10 years. Yeah. You know. Big time. Yeah, it does. And, and there's another question here, which is around lease renewal time. Well, we're talking about how to extract the value of a commercial asset. But I imagine the same thing applies, right? You know, how soon before a lease expires should you start negotiating with a tenant? I personally like letting it lapse, which won't suit most people, but... So you let your leases lapse? Because it doesn't give them time to play the market 
mm. call around. Like a lot of them will do that anyway, but you'd be surprised how many tenants just sort of let it go and just, yeah. Then they don't do the homework and you just come to them and say, here's the new lease. Look, here's a you know, spreadsheet full of all your neighbors' rents. They're yeah. all 20% higher. We'll give you a deal at 10% higher, you know, meet you halfway. But if you do that six months out, from a negotiation point of view, it can come across a little bit desperate. You know, if you're like, oh, quick, quick, renew, please, you know, yeah. come to me. They're going to be like, what's in it for me? Um, I can get something out of this. If it's lapsed, like, they're probably not thinking. There's a less likelihood they're going to think like that. So it's not good for everyone because people want security. But, like, especially if you've got a multi-tenant investment, the safety in numbers, if one tenant, you know, goes vacant, it's not the end of the world. So the accumulation of better negotiation can happen when you're not desperate because you're just going to be from a stronger position. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a hot tip there. There's uh, another one, uh, Scott. Um, what What do you do if you've got vacant property? So I guess it's sort of connected with it. How long if they walk, you know, a bit of brinkmanship and they walk, what, what do you do if your property's vacant? I guess it's a good time to maybe spruce it up a little bit. Yeah. Well, look, we've got a lot of experience because, again, we've helped thousands of clients. So obviously mm. properties go vacant in that period and it's never really a disaster ever because especially when you're buying a well-placed property and the tenant market's pretty good at the moment, I actually sometimes get excited by those opportunities because mm. first of all, you've got to find out why it goes vacant. And I like getting multiple agents on it and just be prepared for, you know, you can get three, four, five months vacancy out of it. But remember, your your next tenant will probably stay five to 10 years as well. So vacancies in commercial uh are all going to happen at once. Um, residential, you're going to get annual vacancies. Mm-hmm. That all adds up to, you know, maybe 40 weeks in a 10-year period anyway. You might get half of that all at once in commercial. So the vacancies can hurt when you're in the moment, but if you work with good managers, then you fill them and you spruce them up. You know, every property will be different. Like you've got to really go through the make good provisions to the last tenant. So as soon as your tenant goes vacant, get your lawyer to look over the lease and just see what is in there in terms of the bond and uh, what they've got to do with the rehab of the property. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess it could be an asset, right, because if you do need to spend a few bucks on the place, you know, often you're better redoing a lease and you contribute to that as part of the lease uh, negotiation. So you keep your rents high. If you say, hey, it's X number of square metres and we'll give you 300, 400 grand to, yep. to spend on fixing the place up, that's all a positive for the for the owner because you can depreciate that you own you own the fit out you can depreciate the fit out and you can keep the cash component of it high. So if you're going to do it anyway, you might as well get might as well get some value out of it. Yeah, these for are sure. the games. And one of the things that one of my pet hates as well is a lazy agent. And I'm not saying they're all like this, but an easy default move is to drop the rent, especially if it's vacant for a mm-hmm. couple of months, and that will really devalue your property over the long term. So. I always say to your agents, like, if I dropped it 20 bucks a square meter, is that instantly going to open me up to a new pool of investors or are you just dropping it because you think it's something to do? And it's amazing how often that, because I get called up and they, my, uh, the clients say, oh, they told me to drop the rent. I'm like, on what basis? What, what's the reason? Are there tenants waiting? Have you got offers at that lower amount? Yeah. Because if you're just dropping it for the sake of it, then, again, that value for the next five years is just going to be artificially kept lower. And uh, sometimes an extra few, but like you need patience and time in the market for that random tenant to come up. Yeah. And um, and they do come up. Like I've seen it hundreds of times and um, yeah, you just got to yeah, just 
grin through it and deal with it and, and then luck happens and then you've yeah. got that tenant. Don't sweat it. Yeah. Don't sweat it. Here's a good question. How close should you get to your tenant? So I guess that is like, do you want to have a relationship with your tenant? I imagine there's probably more negatives than positives, right? Oh, sorry, Phil, I can't pay the rent this week, you know? Yeah. I've never been close to them. And, and look, I know some very great, like real good professional investors that do the opposite. So it's personal choice at the end, end of the day. If you're retired, a lot of my clients are retired, so they've got time, you know, they get in the caravan, they can see their properties, they love it. It's a hobby. It's almost a very oh, So they're like job. great nomads that drive around Australia looking at their, their commercial property, like park in a car park in their van and get their mower out and cut the lawns. Literally, 100%. Like they, like one guy, like he had this big industrial property and he did the garden out the front of it, you know, like just just wanted to do it. You know, yeah. had pride in the property. No one else in the shed probably even noticed it, but it's just, it's something to do. Like you do have pride when you buy a big trophy asset or even a small one. Like, yeah. so everyone knows that through buying a residential house, you're kind of excited about it when you first own it. Then five years later, you forget you got it. It's just, <laughs> it's a cost center or cash flow center. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, people will manage tenants in those cases. And um, yeah, look, my problem is if you get cozy with a tenant, they'll get slack with paying. And you do need to involve a lawyer to send that 14 day breach notice. So if they're late, don't let that habit continue because it's it's a very hurtful habit which can you know it can really get out of hand. So mm. lawyers will come into it and and it cuts it out most times. So you're not going to be the the best friend in those cases. Just yeah. arm's length, good manager in place, and um, yeah, you can do everything you could do self managing, but arm's length. Yeah, it's important. I, I think you're better off being at arm's length rather than otherwise. Otherwise, you get compromised. Um, this is good. The, the biggest capital injection you've ever seen in a, a commercial property. Oh, look, it's, I know I'm negotiating, this is not the biggest, but we're negotiating on one now. There's, yeah, it's, there's about 900 grand of air cons that we've got to fix up. And the owner, like this is a live deal, but the owner basically doesn't think there's anything wrong with it. So you can see like air cons can be huge capital. Yeah. It works. I know shopping centers, like especially the ones the big fund managers manage, like they can be annual several hundred or like three, four million dollars a year on a deal, you've got to basically plan. It's part mm. of the ongoing program. Like clapped out elevators and lifts and stuff, clapped out this, that and the other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all factored in the numbers. Like so you normally like a strata report, you know how they got like a ten year capital works mm. program. Like a, that's what you'll need to do if you start owning lots of big properties. And then you can basically make it into the maintenance program and kind of factored it, factor it in in the outgoings as well as a non-recoverable outgoing. So you could still include it as the yield. You know, well, so you can actually get it factored in so the tenants pay for it. The tenants may not pay for it, but if you go sell the asset or you're buying the asset, more importantly, you yeah. got to look at the rolling capital works program and take that off the numbers because otherwise you're going to get a false economy. Okay. Because you don't have to pay for that, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So new air conditioning is expensive. Yep. Lifts are expensive. So buy shopping centres without lifts, I imagine you say, for some yep. more mum and dad investors. Yep. What about industrial? You, you don't really get hit too hard, right, with industrial stuff. There's there's less moving parts that probably need fixing, right? Yeah, like the walls generally stay for most of our lifetime. The roof might go every 10 to 20, 30, sorry, not 10 years, probably every 20 to 40 years, depending yeah. on the climate. They're probably the biggest cost you'll get in there. Outside of that, it's like power upgrades and, you know, you might have a big crane and stuff like that. A lot of it could be passed on to the tenant as responsible, their responsibility rather. And the costs 
for those can actually be incorporated in the rent. So if you've got a, like a big cantry, cantry crane in there, that means the tenant will have to pay more. If you're the owner of that, the tenant pays more per square meter for the rent. So mm. you, you'll get it back one way or the other. So again, these are the little things that it's hard to pick up the first time you do this. But yeah, if you do your due diligence properly, you can get across these potential unknowns pretty easily. Okay. So another minute or so for another question. So this is a, a bit here, but I'll just be specific one of them. Uh, it's questions here around negotiation of a commercial property do's and don'ts. And they're sort of specifically asking a point here around negotiating on pest and building reports. Uh, how do you suggest you deal with it? So I guess the pest and building reports are tool for trying to get a cheaper price, right? It's probably how you guys use it. You want visibility of what is the state of the property. And we, we spoke about sort of biggest capital injections and hopefully a pest and building report would find out that you, you got knackered air conditioning. How do you use pest and building reports? So this is a big part of my daily job because I'm the one sort of personally negotiating a lot of properties for our clients. So building and pest tends to be the biggest item or maybe just differentials in, in outgoings mm-hmm. are, but um, that can be all related back to building and pests. But the strategy that I use is, well, number one, you've got to get your building and pest report and They're air two different guy. things, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some guy does a building report, some guy does the pest report. Yep. You don't get the same person in the same thing. Very rarely do you get pest issues in commercial because it's a big concrete structure. So mm-hmm. that's probably more of a housing thing, um, but you still get it. But the issues will be in the roof, the air cons, the structural issues and stuff like that. Uh, you know, if you're buying shopping centers or, you know, one we did one that had a swimming pool in it, like, because it was a gym and under the grout it all eroded through. So there was several hundred thousand. And the way to, to do it is, and, and most buyers agents would know this, you basically get, a, get all the evidence and quotes and position it back to the vendor and say, this is not me trying to gouge the price. I'm not winning out of this. If, if you agree to this price, let's say you're asking 500 grand off a $5 million property. Mm. If they agree to that 500 grand, you are not winning. You're literally just you getting back. You spend it. Yeah, I'm yeah. spending it after settlement. If anything, I'm losing because I've got something more to manage. And they might kick and scream and go, that's a ridiculous amount. But then you make the agent aware that, like, because they've got the duty of disclosure as well. Mm. So they can't just, you know, brush this under the carpet and then sell it somewhere else. So this will follow the owner around that big maintenance bill until they're able to accept it's their responsibility or you know, maybe you'll get a cash buyer that doesn't check anything. And, and that's unethical in my opinion. They should always disclose there's issues. We've got live quotes. So just explaining all that to them is is how we get discounts and then offering an unconditional contract. So, you know, like if you've got a deal and there's you're asking a big discount, you've got to be, be prepared to complete the deal on that so that you're not open to further negotiations. Yeah. And and that's it's really tactical, isn't it? So, how many uh, when you're doing this? How many people are selling because they know they've got a big bill coming up uh, as a catalyst for sale? I don't think it's that so much. Like it possibly could. Mm. I I think we know more about the property than the sellers once we're done the due diligence because okay. they haven't got live up to date aircon maintenance reports. Like they haven't done the dig big dive. Like they're obviously gone out of flavour with the investment or they need their money somewhere else. So. I don't think much of that goes on. It's more just unaware guys who haven't spent much on a property for 10 years and then you get into it and they're like, oh, crap, there's a lot in it. Mm. And then the bill looks horrible to them because we're dealing with big numbers. These aren't 10 grand maintenance bills. Yeah. These are, you know, hundreds. They can, yeah, hundreds. And we've done ones in the millions where you mm. literally, but like it's all justified and it's backed up with evidence. And again, we're not having a win here. We're just trying to get it back to square one. Yeah. 
and then we've got to deal with it after. Well, it comes down to buyer beware still, right? You know, if you yep. if you buy it, you've got to be responsible for what you buy. So you need to make sure at the front end you're getting the right the right information. What, what's the biggest sort of pest of building bill you've ever seen on that basis? Like if you've got to go down and do that and do, you know, air conditioning assessments or engineering assessments, if you need to do all that, like that can add up, right? Yeah, well, we saw like a 5,000 square metre medical centre that was sinking. Mm. That, that was just too far gone, that thing. But that yeah. would have been a few million dollars to fix. Yeah. So it's just stuffed. Like, yeah. You're not going to sell that to anyone. No, and I, I know that property. I won't mention it, but it's been for sale through five different agents for at least five years. Mm. You know, they're just trying, going around in circles. Like yeah. they just, I don't think they got the money to fix it themselves. And then everyone... Uh, yeah, it goes under contract and then out goes under contract. So someone just goes, that's too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're pretty rare. Like a good thing about commercial builds is the specs are pretty high. You've got very good operators building this stuff. So I think the variations are, are less compared to someone who's just building a four-bedroom house yeah. in the suburbs. So, yeah, big um, expensive builds tend to have a lot more engineering. Yeah, basically they're over-engineered essentially. Yeah. Good. Well, we covered a lot of ground there, Scott. It's good to do a Q&A. Keep them coming. How do people send questions? What's the best way to, to do that, mate? Um, all, all these questions came through info at rethinkinvesting.com.au. Yeah, let us know what you're thinking. Like uh, the next next few, we've got a few big ones coming up. I want to explore the Tasmanian and Victorian economies Ooh, pretty soon. Okay. Heard, um, we had one of those guys that, you know, similar to, you know, advisors, government come into our office and I look at Tasmania, for example, completely different. It's an incredible economy so down he, there. He come and sold you up on Tasmania, did he? It, it worked. Where did he it, say? Invest in Burnie? Burnie's the place to be? Oh, it's, it's almost everywhere down there, like yeah. 100% renewable economy. Like it's, um, the economy is not subject to droughts or like the agriculture is almost- It's a lot more consistent. Like, yeah. Investors yeah. like the, the lower risk. There's a lot of Asian money going down there. There's- mm expensive, uh, yeah, there, there's just all sorts of good things happening. They buy cheese factories in King Island. Is that the place to be? Is yeah. It? Have you been in King, King Island? No, I haven't. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, don't know what it's like to invest in, in property there. I can't remember the little town, Curry, maybe. Curry is the capital of the King Island. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're going to go to Tasmania, mate, do yourself a favour. Yeah. Get up Head there. Get out there. Have a look around. It's cool. Yeah. Well, cool they got spot. some of the world's best whiskey and yeah, great wineries and all sorts so, of things. So you're saying invest in whiskey distilleries in Hobart. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Is that what you're doing? Oh, no, not yeah. whiskey. Uh, we, we just like the classic industrial and- You're going to um, get in there. You, saw, you got any Tassie stuff? Uh, no, but it, yeah, I will one day for yeah. sure. Yeah, okay. Probably next round I'll, I'll look at it because uh, it's one, like Comsec said, it's the strongest state economy 11 out of the last 12 months. So okay. it's something that's- Going on down there. So. It's the only place we're still a liberal state government by memory, isn't it? It's this little island of, of blue down there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they've changed the economy down there from an old world. I, I remember when I was growing up, my perception of Tassie was coal mining and uh, like just a big, dirty industry, like backward mm. type place. But now it's all renewable energy and like tourism and yeah, just like techie type mm. stuff. So. I've been down a few Maybe we should take the show down there and we can do a. Uh, yeah. Inside commercial property from was it the, the, Mo- the Mona? Is it the Mona down there? The yeah, big, yeah. big uh, art gallery and or one of the big breweries down yeah, there. Down yeah, down through the the Fraser Peninsula is really cool as well. So yeah. um, yeah, I, I know Resi Resi property's done really well down there. I, I don't know if it's sustainable though. Like it can't grow too much more, but whether or not there's legs in. Well, I think you know, Hobart was one of the best cities over the last thirty years, wasn't it? Yeah, for it's growth, perform well. Yeah, it's still. Relatively cheap, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, well, do you reckon it matters when when politics and 
change. Um, was it the WA Premier resigned about a month or so ago? Does it really make much difference to commercial property when stuff like that happens? Oh, look, it does. Like, there's obviously been some changes in Victoria mm. for the negative with extra taxes and stuff like that. So yeah. that that will discourage investment in certain areas. So yeah, look, it depends on what policies they put yeah. in, but. I find the ones that sort of enable the economy to move forward, it's good for commercial investors. And look, what's happening in WA, it's it's such a strong economy too on off the back of all the minerals so and the mining. So there's not much that can slow that down until China decides to Stop slow down. Stuff. So yeah. China affects that probably more than a whatever politic. Well, maybe politics. maybe we can have a chat one day around uh, geopolitics and, and commercial property, right? You yeah, know? Well, that's Just, what you've got covered. That's your domain. Oh, maybe. Um, anyway, well, thanks, Scott. That was uh, really good. Long one, 50 minutes or so. I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Uh, get those questions coming in, which was info at Rethink Investing. I get that right? Questions. Yep. Info. info at rethinkinvesting.com.au. And is that, if people want to have a chat with you guys as well, that's the best place to, to find you and reach yeah. out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, we're... Uh, actively buying all over the country. So if anyone needs a hand or just wants a second opinion on commercial property, happy to help. Mm. Where's the most regional place you've ever bought a property, commercial property? Just a uh, question. Probably some of the small towns in southeast Queensland, you know, yeah. like out Warwick or bought in Chinchilla before. Chinchilla. Yeah. God. But you, you just buy like, you know, something right on the main street, long lease. Um, the yields are incredible. So yeah. you just got to- You only invest in areas that has a airport that takes Qantas planes, right? Is that your, pretty much your <laughs> no. investment profile? No, no, we're, uh, we're all f- over the place. Follow the airports. Yeah. Follow the airports. Nice. Uh, that's Scott O'Neill uh, from Rethink Investing. Uh, reach out to these guys, touch base with them. They're just happy to have a chat with you. That's what you want to do. Uh, info at rethinkinvesting.com. Do you? I hope you enjoyed that, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back again next time. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned.